welcome to another episode of Monkey Business. I'm your host, Rosalind Palmer, and Monkey Business is really behind the habits of successful people because as a mindset coach, transformational therapist, I know that it's really the thought process, the beliefs, the thoughts that go behind those habits that make people phenomenally successful, or sometimes their monkey brain, their chimp brain takes over, it can be when they aren't so successful, but they can come back from that adversity over and over again. So my guests are entrepreneurs, leading business people who really have harnessed, or most of the time, their amazing monkey minds to be phenomenally successful or to create lives, businesses that the rest of us can really marvel at. And this is your chance to learn their secrets. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Eric Edemides. Hello, Eric. Thank you. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm absolutely thrilled. I first saw Eric uh, giving one of the most amazing presentations I've ever seen in my life on stage at an event called A-Fest. And basically, the audience was so delighted with Eric that they moved other speakers around so that they could bring Eric back again. And we all crammed into the room to make sure that we could listen to every ounce of his wisdom. And his energy, his wisdom, his life experience, his insight has been something that I've followed for a long time. So Eric is a serial entrepreneur. He is the creator and founder of the phenomenal Wild Fit so he's passionate about food as medicine or health coming from within. You've set many other businesses up, and I was looking at your CV, but I also remember you sharing this in Prague, that you were part of Hollywood in the special effects area behind small movies like Avatar and Pirates of the Caribbean and Transformers. But now you're very much into the business of education and educating others about their health and about their business. You also have a speaking academy. So, Eric, I welcome. And I know that you very much love to live a life of unrestricted joy and balance and travel. You live somewhere exciting. Obviously, these have been difficult times for that. But how, where did that come from? I mean, as a kid, were you absolutely the, the, the square peg in the round hole who wanted to go and do it your way? You know, I, I think I probably, I, I was to some degree, but I also, um, I, I just, I went through a tough childhood. You know, we, we were immigrants and uh, from South Africa to Canada. And uh, while that's not maybe that big a leap, like it's not like I came from, um, you know, China to Canada and it was a completely different culture, but the fact is it was a very different culture. And, and, uh, when you're four or five years old and you don't know what ice hockey is, you just, you, you kind of, you have to learn stuff really quickly and you have to uh, figure out how to make friends all over again. And then my parents split up when I was young. And so now I was living half my time in Eastern Canada and half my time in Western Canada, flying across Canada, you know, on a regular basis. And, I like I often think of this when people think about like living between their parents, for example, in the UK, it would be really cute to go from Manchester to London. What a huge trek that would be from mum to dad. Right. But in my case, like Canada takes four and a half days to drive across. So it's not, you know, we're talking about a major flight every couple of months to switch between parents and and, and so I kind of, I had an odd childhood with, with its ups and downs. You know, my dad was battling alcoholism during those days. And, and so I think partly they're just, 
I, I kind of have this thing that happened when I was a kid. And that was, if it's, it, if, it, if it is to be, it's up to me. Like at the end of the day, my survival was actually up to me. My enjoyment was actually up to me because everybody else around me was busy working on their survival. And, and I, I, so I think maybe some, some of the independence that I created was uh, by necessity. Also, I used to describe myself as a sensible maverick, and I very much like that kind of left brain, right brain. My A-levels were economics and then English literature. And I know certainly from the circles that you move in and from the work that you do that there's this business side and this entrepreneurial side. And I know that you came, um, you were a very, very top trainer for Tony Robbins, who I also uh, worked with back in the 90s. But then there's a spiritual side, you know, like the secret to the kind of Wayne Dyers of this world. And balancing the two is something I strive all the time for. So do you ever feel that you're too people or how do you how do you combine those two sides with a foot in both camp you know I, I many years ago I was doing my funny enough I was doing my very first ever like a live major workshop I mean, it's about 15 years ago and um I was on stage in London 150 people and somebody asked me a question like that and I said well I think personal development is you know, a little bit like politics, you know, you've got the left wing and the right wing. And I said, over on the left, you've got like, you know, you've got, well, I said on the right, you've got action and logic and, and, you know, and decisions you've got, you know, it's like, that's where you're going to find like Brian Tracy and you're going to find Tony Robbins. If you want to make things happen, you have to make a decision and take action. And, 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 and then I ran all the way to the other side of the stage and I go, and over here on the left, it's like, you got Wayne Dyer, you got Abraham Hicks, another half mile that way to the left. You, and then you've got Deepak Chopra and Deepak says, but Tony, if you want it to happen, you just have to think about it. <laughs> and I kind of made this silly little like joke about the left and the right. And, and then I said, but the truth is what you need to do is you need to walk to the middle and you need to have a foot in both camps. And you need to have a foot in both camps simultaneously. Because if you swing from one side to the other, you create this pendulum effect where very much like in politics, funny enough, you elect an incredibly strong leftish government and they do some good stuff and then they go wrong. Then you have to elect an incredibly strong right government and then they do some good stuff and then they go wrong. So it strikes me that in our personal development, sometimes I see people swinging dramatically from the right to the left, the right to the left. They, they, they have days where it's like, today's only about doing, today's only about doing. And then the next day it's like, today's only about being. Today's, I'm like, well, what about being and doing? And so for me, the balance is to do the best you can to be present to both of those realities um, simultaneously. So when you are in the action state, you still also want to be paying attention to your vibration, to your, to your thought process um, at the same time. And uh, so I think that's where the balance is, is trying to hold those things together. So uh, like I, when I'm out speaking in public, here's what I get is a lot of times when I'm speaking on business, people are quite like, they're a little close-minded. So for example, I, if I'm going to have people do a meditation, I don't say, let's do a meditation. I say, could everybody just close your eyes and take a deep breath? Because there are some people like, oh, meditation, that's, that's weird spiritual stuff, right? And so I kind of, sometimes I will put on a more action-oriented, a more uh, Newtonian physics kind of attitude about the way I'm teaching something. But underneath it, I always have the other side. I always have the, the metaphysical side. And, and, I, and, and I remind myself, of it. like, okay, the, this, I wear these... Um, uh, um, uh, necklaces, whatever, from, from Energy Muse. 
and they're all crystals and 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 magic and old ancient Chinese coins or special rocks and so forth. And I I've been wearing them for years and years. And look, do I believe that the black one that's about protection is actually going to protect my energy from the audience who you know might be? I don't know, but you know what? It reminds me to protect myself from that energy. And so one foot in each camp, as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. Other times you've not got that balance, right? Oh yeah. There's no question about that. You know, there, there's no, um, and I'll tell you what, what causes for me. And I think maybe some people will be able to relate to this is, but um, if I allow fear or anxiety to uh, rule the day, then I, then it's hard to have that balance. And, and, you know, when you talk about, um, sort of the monkey brain and so on. We, we have a thing, we have a, a, a thing that we teach both in WildFit and in our quantum shift events. And it's, we call it super consciousness. And we call super consciousness this moment when your conscious mind and your subconscious mind are in alignment. In other words, your automatic behaviors, your automatic decisions, your natural habits are taking you in the same direction as your conscious mind wants you to go in. An example of when that's not happening Obviously, I think about food quite a lot. So somebody says to themselves, well, I'm going on a diet and I'm not going to eat any sugar for a while, say. And then two days later, they see a donut and now they're in conflict. And at some point, their subconscious mind takes over and convinces them. They're so conflict and then they or have that donut. And then afterward, they have guilt. That guilt... That guilt is an example of an incongruency between what the subconscious created and what the conscious mind wanted. That's a lack of super consciousness. When we have super consciousness, you, 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 you've made the decision, well, I don't eat donuts anymore. And you, you see donuts and you don't even regard them as food anymore. Now that's like super conscious. And so what happens to us is, is that our subconscious mind takes over when we're in fear. And that's because it's faster. You know, it's got, it's got millions of years of evolution and DNA and instinct. It's also got all your somatic memories from when you were a child. So it's got all this programming about how, look, if you're alive, if you're 40, 50, 60 years old and you're still alive, then your brain is going, man, whatever I did up to now must be. Now that's not necessarily true because we live in the safest times ever. So everybody's still alive at six. I'm kidding. Of course, not everybody, but compared to previous generations, we barely face any danger at all. And so we still have this old app from all the many generations that lived in total danger. And that app says, if I'm alive on Tuesday, whatever I did on Monday must be good. And so now what happens to us is we get into fear and we start, you know, creating adrenaline and pumping cortisol. And at that point, a bunch of things happen. One is our intelligence dips, our connection with logic goes away, our, our empathy fades, and we become very selfishly centered around our own focus on our own fear and anxiety and our own survival. And I've noticed that anytime I fall out of balance between having a foot in each camp, it's because I've gone to survival mode. And in survival mode, there is no esoteric. In survival mode, there is only Darwinian fight and flight, you know, Newtonian fight and flight even. I got to make that happen right now. So what that says to me is when I find that kind of thing happening in my life, I need to find a way to ground. I, if it's the right music, if it's a walk on the beach, if it's a call to the right friend. But if I don't get myself grounded, I am not allowed to make major decisions and I'm not allowed to think about stuff. Like the worst thing in the world is to be like low on sleep, a little messed up with your diet, a little bit full of anxiety, and then to contemplate your life. Like there's no point in that. Food and fear. Now, they're kind of topical at the moment, aren't they? I, I engage with you on Facebook and obviously uh, without going into 
we wouldn't have time for this interview, uh, a massive conversation about why people are getting ill, why people are fearful of getting ill, and what people are or are not doing to really help their peak health through the food that they're taking and through the food promises from a lot of the food companies. Um, what are your current thoughts on that, Eric? Um, it, it's a difficult conversation because uh, what's happening these days is everything is getting politicized. Every political party is looking at everything that's going on and going, how can I use this to get elected? So it's no longer about trying to find the right solution, which is why a single event can happen. And the left will spin it one way to get themselves elected. And then the right will spin it their way to get themselves elected. And then when one of them gets elected and does the wrong thing, then they will take all the data they can to prove that it wasn't actually the wrong thing. And then we wonder why the population is confused. And so I, I, here, here's what I like to do. I like to go to what I believe to be like the provable common sense things that we can take care of. For example, let's talk about masks. Like everybody gets into this debate about whether they should or shouldn't be wearing a mask. And I can tell you, I, I don't really know. Uh, I don't really know. I, I mean, it's funny to me that the CDC in America last week told people in the Bay Area not to bother wearing a mask because smoke particles can get through the mask but smoke particles are bigger than COVID-19 viruses. So I don't really understand why we get this cognitive, well, I understand why we get cognitive dissonance. I don't know why they're doing that to us. But so, you know, for me, things like whether or not a, a vaccine is required for this particular virus, whether or not masks are a good idea, these are all like, in a sense to me, questionable things that each population and each government's going to have to figure out. And then the people are going to have to determine what guidelines they follow and, and so on. And people have to do that. But here's what doesn't seem to be questionable. What doesn't seem to be questionable is that if you are unhealthy, if you have allowed your health to drift, then you are at substantially greater risk of COVID-19 or the flu or tuberculosis or anything else that attacks your body. Yeah. And so for me, I'm a very pragmatic guy and I look at this and go, well, you know what? I do wear a mask. I'm going to be on a plane tomorrow. I'm flying to Europe. I'm going to wear a mask on the plane. Not so much because I think it's going to save me, but because that's the rule. And I'm not, I, I, I will rebel against stuff when I think it's useful to rebel against stuff, but in this, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do what it takes. But you know what I'm going to do that's even more important than that to me? I'm going to make sure that I do the best I can to be in the best possible condition I can be before I get on that plane. Yeah. I'm going to make sure that I've been eating well, that I've been exercising, that, that, that I'm in the best possible shape. Now, that will not prevent me from catching COVID-19. It won't. That's not how immunity works. But what it might mean is that I am one of the over 50% of people that are testing positive that have an asymptomatic situation where they actually get nothing because the virus seems to be much harder on people when they're not healthy. I, I, I have a silly little theory uh, that I first started talking about a few months ago and you know, got my fair share of social media ridicule about it. But I, I really believe that if, if COVID-19, I'm not talking about every virus. I'm not talking about the Spanish flu. I'm not talking about Ebola. I'm just saying COVID-19 from what we know is particularly dangerous. If you have blood sugar problems, metabolic disease, inflammation, obesity, diabetes, it's particularly dangerous in those situations. So what that says to me is if this virus escaped from its bat or its cave or its lab or wherever it came from, if it escaped in 1955, we would barely even have known about it because there wouldn't have been enough sick people in the population to cause hospital surges and viral spread. Yeah. And so what that says to me today is on a personal basis, we have to manage our relationships with sugar. I will put to you that in March, I came up with my theory about this and I recorded a video and it went fairly viral. And a lot of doctors attacked me, said I didn't understand viral, you know, viruses, I didn't understand immunology. And of course now, many doctors are coming going, 
This is exactly what needs to be said. And so what I'm saying today is that it's different. You need to be healthy. And healthy doesn't mean simply that I'm not diabetic or I'm not obese because I am going to put to you that I think we're going to find the data comes out now. They're talking about only 6% of the people who have succumbed to COVID were healthy. I'll bet you that when we go into the data deeper, we're going to find that those 6% had incredibly high blood glucose at the time they got the infection. And, I, and, and they would be healthy, but they had way too much blood sugar. And, and I think that, that that's that because that's the earliest, earliest pre-pre-pre-obesity, pre-pre-pre-diabetic. And so I think our job first time is to eat as well as possible to keep ourselves fit and healthy and to then pay attention to the guidelines that are being offered to you by your government around social distancing and so forth. But your body's your last line of defense. You got to take care of it. And what about the fear factor? I mean, I always advise people, you know, not to look at the media all the time or certain media anyway. What would be your uh, policy on people not getting consumed with fear? All right, I'm gonna give you a silly example, but it applies. I have um, helped literally tens of thousands of people in 130 countries change the relationship with food. And in having done that, I have discovered that there's a group of people, mostly female, and mostly between 35 and 60 or so, that have actual fear of their scales. They, they have actual fear of the scale. They, they go into the bathroom, they know they're gonna weigh themselves, so they already start to tense up. They already, and by the way, by the way, people who have high blood pressure, some people who think they have high blood pressure don't even have high blood pressure. What happens is they go into the doctor's office, they end up under stress. It's called white lab coat syndrome or something like that. They walk in and the doctor's office causes them enough stress to add 40 points to their blood pressure. So, so what happens for a lot of these people, mostly, as I say, mostly women in my experience so far, is that they walk into the bathroom and they're like, oh God, there's the scale. I'm going to go over to the scale. And they start walking over to the scale with apprehension creating cortisol. By the way, cortisol tells the body to store fat and not to release any. So the irony of this is twisted, right? So now they're walking toward the scale, raising cortisol, telling their body to store fat. And then they go stand on the scale and they're like, oh God, I don't want to look. I don't want to look. I don't want to look. And then they look down and go, oh no. And they slam themselves with more fear and more stress, which raises more cortisol, which means that night their body won't release any fat. It's amazing. Now, these type of um, emotional roller coasters we put ourselves on, they're because we have something that we call the evolution gap. And the evolution gap is the gap between our evolved physiology and psychology and our current state of technology and, and, and uh, civilization. So we have an adrenal system, we have a stress system that was designed for fight or flight in a time when we face daily physical dangers. We don't anymore, but we still have this old system. And the old system takes over when we allow it, when we, when we get ourselves too scared. So, for example, if somebody feels particularly uncertain, if they're feeling particularly uncertain, they're going to reach out for certainty however they can. Now, Rosalind, you and I are old enough to remember that there was a time when you could trust the news to some degree. The old Walter Cronkite type guys that got on there and actually told what was happening in the world. The deal that the American government made with the stations at the time was you can broadcast entertainment, but for an hour a day, you got to tell what's going on. And that's before the Cardassians became more important than quantitative easing, right? Like it's, it, there was a time, but the problem is, is that in some level, the news has this brand of, you can get your certainty from us. We will tell you what's going on. Now, this is a great feedback loop because the more uncertain we feel, the more likely we are to look at the news. The news has figured this out. So now what they do is they specifically drive us toward uncertainty to keep us addicted to their channel. 
And, and, and they do it through a number of means, like lying in headlines and, and, and telling the semi-truth in the body. I saw a really great example about this, a little bit controversial, but there was a great headline in, on CNN. And it said, woman dies from drinking wine laced with ecstasy. Okay, now we have to take a step back and talk about ecstasy for a moment because ecstasy is becoming known as an incredibly effective therapeutic drug for relationship counseling and PTSD counseling. But as that's going on, there are pharmaceutical companies who don't necessarily want that to happen, right? Because you can't patent it, so they can't own the drug. And on top of that, well, in any event, so now let's look at the article. Woman dies after drinking a glass of wine laced with ecstasy. We should define this. What is a glass? A glass is a glass. What is wine? Wine is a glass. Wine is in the glass. And what is a laced? What does laced mean? Laced means trace elements. Like maybe one drop for the whole glass would be laced, right? Okay. Then you read the article and you find out what really happened is that the woman found a bottle of wine in the basement of the restaurant I think she was working in, cracked open the bottle of wine, poured herself a glass of wine and drank it. But what the headline doesn't tell you is there was no wine in the bottle. The bottle was being used to import ecstasy, smuggle ecstasy because it's against the law. And so she drank pure ecstasy. She didn't drink any wine. There was no lacing. It was a, but the headline is designed, A, to freak you out, to make you afraid, and B, to deceive you. And so what I'm saying these days is if you cannot walk up to the scale without fear and look at the number without fear, then don't weigh yourself. If you can't read the news without anxiety, if you can't read the news and spin it back, let me put it to you this way. If you're going to read CNN, you got to spin hard to the right to get anywhere near the truth. If you're going to read Fox News, you got to spin infinitely hard to the left to get anywhere near the truth. And if you can't do that, then don't read the news. Yeah. If anything important enough happens that you should know about it, your friends will tell you. It's also not really news, a lot of it. I was watching a program about the 80s when the news channels really changed, when Fox emerged, etc. And basically, they decimated the numbers of reporters. So back in the day, because I have a, a media and PR background, you know, there would be a lot of reporters who would go out and actually find out the truth or find out the and they found that they could have one or two anchor people in a studio get rid of all of these journalists but they were talking conjecture a lot of the time because that was how they filled the air so you've had that plus exactly what you're saying wild fit that is very much um i i sort of i know you go off and spend time with amazing bush people in in the in africa and obviously you, your your roots are from that country how did you conceive wild fit because obviously i know so many people who it's been an absolute life and game changer for but i want to understand the thinking behind it when you thought well yeah let's go back to this it, it was an interesting evolution. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day about university, and um, I didn't go to university. I couldn't, in fact. By the time I finished school, there were economic reasons I couldn't go. And I'm probably not the right personality for that. But I, 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 what came out of the conversation is I started thinking about the development of my business career and particularly about WildFit. And you see, there are three things that converged together to make WildFit um, happen. Uh, the one was... Uh, um, understanding evolutionary biology. 
The other one was beginning to understand what we might call nutritional anthropology, which is a similar discipline, but a, but a slightly different thought process. And then the other one was um, the uh, uh, behavioral change psychology, understanding how to help people change their behavior. And I guess maybe there's a fourth, and that was entrepreneurship. And the thing is, I think had I gone to university, I might have been able to select in one or two things. But that would have been the end of it. And, and, and in my case, it didn't work that way. And so what happened for me is I went through a huge health recovery of my own and I made an incredible discovery. It was two-part discovery, in fact. One was that, it's funny, you said in the intro, uh, food is medicine. We joke around, no, food isn't medicine. Food is food. If we think of it as medicine, then we're going to wait till we get sick and then start eating well. No, 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 no. Food is food. Food is a required thing of the body. Now, there are some foods that have medicinal properties, but the, we, you know, we, we, what I realized about food was that if you, if you think of it this way, people spend a lot of time worrying about what not to eat. Oh, I shouldn't eat this bad thing. I shouldn't eat that bad thing. What's way more important than that is eating what you do need. That's even more important. You get way more sick from eating not enough of the good stuff than you do from eating the bad stuff. If you're really healthy, your body can handle quite a lot of bad stuff. It's no problem. So, so you know, I, that discovery came along. Then I was talking to one of my doctors about what I'd been going through, and he, you know, he, he was not even vaguely curious about why I didn't need the surgery. He wanted to have my tonsils cut out at 21, and I didn't need them cut out anymore. The infections were gone. But I asked him, like, you know, how long did you go to medical school for? And he said six years. And I asked him, okay, so how much of that time is spent studying food, nutrition, and that sort of thing? Like literally none, like not four hours. And I have now asked that question of doctors in 20 countries around the world, and I have met one. I've met a few that had studied some food because they took electives, but I met one who was required to study nutrition for six months. And apparently in Albania, to become an MD, you have to do six months of nutrition. That's the only country I've ever found this in. So, so that kind of woke me up to realizing if they're not going to take pay attention, like that's like to me, that's like getting on a plane and finding out the pilot didn't study flying. Like I, I'm going to go, I'm going to figure this out for myself now. And so then what happened is I went deep dive into what we'd call the evolutionary biology, nutritional anthropology, really trying to get to the bottom of the answer, what is the human diet? And once I figured that piece out, I happened to be in business throughout all this time. I, I, I owned a number of businesses that you talked about in the introduction. So I was learning about entrepreneurship and marketing and that kind of stuff. So that was another. And then the third thing came along, and that was when I decided to teach business, Thank you very much to Tony Robbins, frankly. He, he invited me to come and teach business at his programs, and I loved it so much that I started teaching business regularly. But my business clients started asking me about energy. How do I have all this energy? How do I not do jet lag? How do I travel around the world? Like, how do I do all this? And so I started sharing with them what I'd learned about nutrition and evolutionary biology. And the reason that I'd never written a book about it, I wrote, I wrote a book in about 1996, 97 called The Human Diet. But as a kid, I didn't know anything about publishing. I didn't know how all that stuff worked. But the other thing is, when I looked around and saw people buying diet books, it didn't, I'd, I'd seen some books that had some good stuff in them and people either don't read it at all or read it and follow it for a few hours or days and then they're done. And so I just didn't want to add another feckless diet book to the shelf, right? Then my clients started asking me questions about it. So I started teaching it, but I was teaching it kind of, I don't know, for intellectual curiosity. I didn't, but then I started getting frustrated. I would teach stuff to people who were in health distress, like that really needed to make changes. And then I would see them six months later and they didn't make the change. And Rosalind, that irked me. I mean, it really irked me. And so one day I sat down and thought about it and I thought, well, I noticed when I went to school that most of the teachers that I interacted with and some of the professors that I interacted with seemed to believe that learning was the student's responsibility. 
And I don't take that opinion as a teacher. My, my, my feeling as a teacher is that the learning is the teacher's responsibility. It's my responsibility to give the data in a way that makes it sticky, that gets it into the person's head. And so if I'm teaching something transformational, the transformation is also my responsibility. Now, does it mean that I feel like a horrible failure if one of my students doesn't follow everything that I've said? No, no. They, they have their responsibility too. But for me, it starts with me. And so I took that on board and I thought there are, th there are things that we do in the way we teach business where people call us a year later and go, I still don't procrastinate. I still do the things done properly. I still hire people exactly the way you taught me to hire people. Like, and I thought, all right, what if I applied that to the way I think about food? And that's what did it. I combined those disciplines, nutrition, behavioral change, psychology, and entrepreneurship and started WildFit. And by, you know, and, and it started with eight people, Rosalind, eight people on a Zoom call. Actually, it was Google Hangouts back then. You know, remember back then in the old days? And uh, <laughs> what's that? I said, back in the day. <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. And, and, you know, we did those first and they all got results. And we did another eight and another eight. And then word of mouth started spreading. And soon, like one day, this guy called us and he goes, I'm going to tell my network about WildFit. And I'm like, okay, whatever, you know. And we, we had like 100 clients a year at that point. It was just a hobby. It was just a fun hobby. And all of a sudden, 200 people signed up in like two days. It was, we're like, we didn't even have, a, we put up the website because he asked us to. We didn't even have one. And the next thing you know, another guy did it. And then Vision Lucky Valley did it. And then 1,100 people signed up in a week. So we went from like, we went from 100, 150 clients a year to 3,000 clients in one year. And then 5,000, and it just grew. And, and to me, what made it happen was my real deep curiosity about human history and, and, and human diet. But more than that, because there are some phenomenal people already working in that space. I am a huge fan of Professor Tim Noakes out of South Africa, Dr. Asim Malhotra in London. There, there are some, uh, uh, Paul Saladino, there's some incredible doctors that are doing great work today. What I do, I think that's so different is that I take it on board to actually help the client change the relationship with food. People come and work with us. And then you see, look, you can only use willpower for so long. I think of willpower like this. You can use willpower to hold your breath, <gasps> but there's a point where your body, your monkey brain is going to take over and go, you got to breathe. And it'll even do that if you're underwater or in a room full of cake and donuts. And so what we have to do is move past power stage and get to the place where people don't even want that stuff. It's a lot easier to avoid ice cream if you don't want it. Yeah. Oh, totally. And I'm, I'm actually a weight loss hypnotherapist as well. So obviously I'm just dealing with the mindset. I don't then have the diet and the nutrition to go forward after it, but I always recommend wild fit. So if I get anybody who's really finally worked out that they're just playing groundhog day with yo-yo dieting and they cannot shed the weight or it comes back on again, we've got to deal with what's going on in here. And then I'll Absolute the point them in one of your wonderful people's direction because I I'm, I know many of them and they're very good friends. So, what about the time you do spend in Africa with these tribal people? What 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 does that teach you? You know, um, it's funny. I think a lot of times people want to romanticize that there's some greater wisdom, you know, in in um, like indigenous peoples and you know that they have a greater connection with the land and all that kind of stuff i'm not one of those people i i don't don't think they're any more wise <clears throat> um or any more spiritual than we are i just think that in the case of the hadza people who i've been visiting with um there is a um opportunity to get a glimpse at a lifestyle that probably is a lot closer to the lifestyle that our ancestors lived than the one we live today 
And so that means that we've been able to see things like, you know, the way they hunt or gather, the way they eat, the way they, uh, the way they raise their children. Um, and I, I've just found it, I've been visiting them now for over 10 years and I've just found it incredibly fascinating. And how do you find peace, Eric, inner peace? Um, yeah, you know, in moments, uh, I, I, I'm lucky enough to live on the beach. Um, and so I find a lot of peace in the ocean. I find incredible peace when I'm in Africa. Uh, I was born in South Africa and I've spent probably more than a year of my life cumulatively in the wild, in the bush. And uh, there's never a time that I'm more at peace than sitting around the fire at night, looking up at the big African sky. I, it just, yeah. it's everything. Mm-hmm. But I also find incredible peace. Um, I really noticed it a lot this last, you know, I was separated from my daughter throughout the lockdown uh, for four months and she's at the time three years old. Oh. And um, so I've been with her a lot since and I find a lot of peace in holding her and uh, smelling her hair. And, uh, and putting her bed at night and reading Dr. Seuss books to her. Um, and uh, it's, yeah, it's just the most gorgeous thing in the world. And she is particularly adorable because I've uh, met her. <laughs> yeah, is she really is. I haven't asked you that you'd love to ask yourself, bearing in mind the kind of busy entrepreneurs. Um, I like to often call my go-to clients burnt-out Barbara or burnt-out Bob. So, you know, they, they maybe haven't got that balance. They haven't quite got all of these things. Is there anything you'd like to ask yourself so that you could share one last piece of wisdom with everybody? Um. Yeah, I guess I'm constantly asking myself stuff, but it's generally about, um, you know, like, here's a really important question to ask, I think. Do you like yourself? I, I think it's a really important question. Do you like yourself? And, and, and you know, that maybe that question is at the heart of all self-esteem. But the way I, I think about my days is that every single day is an opportunity to grow or erode my self-esteem or my sense of like of myself. And so, for example, if I, uh, obviously I don't have this issue today, but when, you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, um, I might want to be like on a diet or something. I might want to not eat a particular food. And if I eat that food, even though I don't want to, then that day I'm going to like myself just a little less, aren't I? I mean, isn't that what guilt and shame is a little less like of your own behavior? And so I, I'm really asking that question on a, on a regular basis. Like if I do this, will I like myself? Will I respect myself? Will I respect myself in the morning, Rosalind? You know, it's like, I want to know. And, and so I think that I, I, I really try to balance that in the course of the day and, and, and create a lot of um, self-honesty about whether this particular action is going to improve my sense of self-esteem or whether it's going to erode it. And I'm really sensitive to that because what I noticed is, is that if ever I've let it erode long enough, it becomes really hard to stay on course. Um, if, if, for example, if somebody doesn't want to eat a donut and then they do eat that donut, it's a lot harder to resist another donut the next day. And if they eat it the second day, then the next day they're having a cake. Now I, I don't, so much struggle with food in that sense anymore. But I mean, I still have the, those types of things. I, I, I have a number of three really interesting businesses or brands that I'm working on at the moment, Wild Fit, Business Freedom and Speaker Nation. And then I've got my own speaking career outside of that. And so there are a lot of times there's pretty big demands on my time. And then I have to make choices. Like um, I, I, today, today I've got, I, I'm flying to Europe tomorrow. Um, my 
little girl is uh, in school for part of the day, I can pull her out and in the afternoon with her. I've got a friend of mine visiting with her four-year-old. So, wow, I could have a really high quality afternoon. But I also know that I have a lot of work I need to do before I get on the plane. I'm going to have to find the balance between those things. And so what I tend to realize is that the, um, that, that the present me is always a lot smarter about what the future me should be doing than the future me is by the time he becomes the present me. And so what I mean by that is that in this moment, I'm able to look at how this afternoon should go with greater consciousness than I can when I'm in the actual afternoon. And, and, and so what I really try to do is use that wisdom. And then this is, I think, where the, where the rubber hits the road, so to speak, is that if you make a decision in the morning about what you're going to do in the afternoon, but you arrive at the afternoon and you're going to change that decision, you need to really look inside and go, if I change this, am I going to feel better or worse about myself? Because that's going to affect everything about the way I live tomorrow. In fact, it's a decision. I often think of us as living in these weird multiverse type things. And every time you make a decision like that, you're choosing which universe you want to live in. And so when you choose to procrastinate something, you choose to live in a universe in which you procrastinate. Wonder what that future is going to look like. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That is just brilliant. There's a great saying, isn't there? Character is who you are when nobody else is looking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my other favorite one is be the person your dog thinks you are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, Eric, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much. And I appreciate, particularly in such a busy day when you're about to leave and you want to spend time with your adorable daughter to joined us today on monkey business and i know that there's some really fantastic wisdom there um when the this goes out we will put links to all of your amazing courses we didn't even get around to the speaking and speaker nation so i think we're going to have to book another call because i know you've given so many people a voice and confidence i've seen people blossom in front of my eyes so you're doing amazing things with people's self-esteem with their entrepreneurship with their diets with their life with their mind so eric thank you so much and I know people will take so many nuggets of wisdom from you. Um, so I've been joined with Eric Edemides. I'm Rosalind Palmer, and you've been listening to Monkey Business. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Monkey Business Podcast, a podcast for your business monkey mind. I'm Rosalind Palmer, and my guest today has been the remarkable Erica Demides, a wild fit creator, internationally recognized speaker, serial entrepreneur, and health guru who helps business entrepreneurs on the road to real business freedom. Topics discussed have been cultural identity, his childhood, balancing the logic and action-orientated personal development skills he learned with people like Tony Robbins, protecting your energy, keeping it high, why diets don't work and why people are afraid of their bathroom scales, and overcoming semantic memories and childhood conditioning to not just create but also maintain healthy behaviours. We've also touched on some COVID debates, how he's created that global business, why teachers need to understand and make their way clear for their students, and how he finds peace. And if that peace was found 
with his time with tribal people. For another wonderful episode of Monkey Business, stay tuned. We're on all the podcasting platforms, or you can reach me at www.rosalindpalmer.com.